You see, the, the slide has changed, hasn't it? Over the last number of weeks, we've had a slide up there which has said 40. Now it has these two words, one another. Actually, uh, in the Bible, those words, one another, are, is actually one word in Greek, and it appears almost 100 times in the New Testament. It's one of the most common words. And usually when you find it in the New Testament, it's something's connected to it. And you can see some of them there. Love one another, submit to one another, spur one another on to love and good deeds, forgive one another. And uh, here are some of the, the many one another's that you'll find. There are a ton of them. This summer, we're going to be here at, at First Baptist Church focusing on the one another's. And each week, we're going to deal with another of the one another's. You might wonder why. The first reason why is because this is basically our task. Our task as Christians, first and foremost, is to love one another. Jesus said, people will know that you follow me because you love each other. What's so big about that? Well, here's what's so big about it. The Christian church is really weird. It's weird, in, well, it's weird in lots of ways, but one of the ways that it's particularly weird is most clubs, most institutions get to choose who's part of them. We don't. We take all comers. And it means that lots of the people who come to the church you probably don't like because you didn't pick them. But guess what? You may not like them, but you gotta love them. And one of the great beauties of being a part of the church is God's not so interested that we have a great time, but he's deeply interested that our character is molded into the image of Jesus. And if, that, if he's going to do that, we've got to learn to love people we would not choose to be with. We wouldn't choose them. We might not even like them. It doesn't matter. We must love them. We must be humble toward them. We must do good to them, etc. All of these things. Another reason that we're going to do this is because here at First Baptist Church, you're going to see it over and over again this summer, we're trying to get this church into the mindset that we should be part of small groups. You obviously can't know everyone in this flock. It's way, way, way too big. But you can know and practice the one another's with a small group of people. That's why we have small groups, so that you can pray for each other. You can, you can confess your sins one to another. You can encourage one another and many, many other things. So you will have chances to, to practice them. And you'll notice in your bulletin again, here's the, the insert. We're trying to figure out what small groups are going on right now and we would like to start new ones. So that's another reason for it. And it's probably one of the most practical of all the things we can do at his church is to learn the one another's. So today, that's what we're going to do. But before we turn to the, um, we're going to turn today to one of my favorite one another's. It's probably my favorite one another passage of all. And it's going to have something to do with that picture. Um, that picture is a picture of um, somebody walking out a door. Now, the people that walk out the door of the church today are, have a name. They're called Duns, D-O-N-E-S. These are people that are done with the church. By the fact that they're done with the church means that they were once part of the church. And what you may not know is pollsters tell us today 
that if you poll the people in America and you ask them, are you an evangelical Christian? Evangelical means you believe in the gospel. If you ask the people in America today, are you an evangelical Christian? And for those who said yes, now more than 50% of them go to no church at all. Why? They're done with church. That's horrible. Jesus, well, thankfully he's not in the grave. If he was, he'd roll over. <laughs> he could not hardly imagine anything so horrible as that. More than half the people who would readily identify themselves as followers of Jesus want nothing to do with the church. Well, why not? Well, it's pretty obvious. They've probably gotten burned. They probably had some relational difficulties. They had pastors they didn't like and worship, the music wasn't their kind of music. You see, for more than 50 years now, we've been pushing in this society over and over again that the church is all about you. It's a consumer. You go to church where you can get your needs met. I don't really see that in the Bible anywhere because the church is not about us. It's about Jesus. It's about being made in the image of Jesus. But since we've been pushing this consumer stuff now for 50 years, people have started to get the message. And so our church is full. Well, they're not full. <laughs> they're empty. They're devoid of people who, who go to church, even though they would identify themselves as Christians. Today, we're going to deal with a passage of Scripture as I said, one of my favorite passages, it's in Hebrews chapter 10. So if you have your Bible, please turn to Hebrews chapter 10. And this particular text of scripture I've called the lettuce patch. And you'll see why. It's the easiest title I've ever come up with. Because in this passage of scripture, Hebrews 10, 19 to 25, the words let us appear five times. Let us, let us, let us, let us, let us. So it's the lettuce patch of the Bible. And it's one of the main texts in the whole scriptures that tell us how we should deal with one another. But the reason I selected this, test, this text to start this series is not because of what it tells us to do, but because it tells us who we are. Because one of the mar marvels of the Bible is the Bible always tells us who we are before it tells us what we're supposed to do. And so I welcome you today to the lettuce patch. Now the lettuce patch is found in the book of Hebrews. You may not know much about the book of Hebrews. It's one of the books of the New Testament that we often skip, which is a major mistake. It's one of the most powerful books in the, in the Bible, and it happens to be a book of the Bible that fits our times remarkably well. We don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews. We don't even know when it was written, but we do know it was written sometime in about the 60s AD. That means it's written a whole generation after the time of Jesus. There had been a whole generation of Christians that had grown up, and now they're in the second generation of Christians. And remember, all of the early Christians, all of them, 100%, were all Jewish. You know the church today is mainly Gentile, but not the original church. For the first 10 years of the church's history, from the year 30 to the year 40, there were no Gentiles, zero. They weren't allowed. All the Christians were Jewish. 
who acknowledged Jesus as their Messiah. But when they did that, they started to become separated, obviously, from the synagogue. They were separated from their families. Some of them kicked them out. And so you had this group of Jewish Christians now that formed themselves together into the early churches. And then, kicking and screaming, God forced their hand to bring Gentiles into the church. And now the church exploded with Gentiles until there were way, way, way more Gentiles than there were Jews. So now these original Jewish people who were part of the original church, they're getting persecuted. Their families have ostracized them. They now are in the minority in the Christian church. Though Jesus is Jewish. The apostles are Jewish. They're in the minority. So they start to think to themselves, Maybe we ought to go back to Judaism. I mean, we, we had our families. We weren't persecuted. We were in the majority. And so they were starting to leave. The Jewish Christians were starting to leave the Christian church. Some of them going back to Judaism. And so whoever wrote this book is trying to, he writes to the Hebrews, to Jewish people, and the basic message of this book is, why? Oh, why would you go back to something so inferior when you've had a taste of the superiority of the Lord Jesus Christ? Why would you go back? This is not an unusual phenomenon, by the way. This very day, if you took polls in countries in Eastern Europe, like Hungary being one of them, I believe, a majority of the people in those countries want to go back to communism. After you've had a taste of freedom, you want to go back to communism? You've got to be kidding. Yes, they do. Why? At least we had food and we didn't have to work for her. The government took care of us. Even if it was a very low standard, at least the government took care of us. And that government taking care of us is better than this freedom stuff where we don't know what's coming. And so they revert back. That's what they were doing in the early church by the second generation. And so the writer of Hebrews says, oh, please, please understand the superior of Christ. He's superior to Moses. He's superior to the law. He's superior to the angels. He's superior to the temple. He's superior to the high priests. He's got a superior way of faith, a superior way of morality, a superior motivation. Why would you ever go back to something inferior when you've had a taste of the riches and the freedom of Jesus? And so this is the book that we turn to now. In chapter 10, this is the hinge chapter of the book. He's laid the groundwork, and now he's in the hinge. He's going to say, what are the implications of this? And so we turn to chapter 10 in the book of Hebrews. The first thing God is going to do is he's going to tell us uh, our resources. Um, someone wrote this. Actually, there are several people to whom it's attributed. The person who knows how will always have a job. The person who knows why will always be his boss. If you know what to do, you will have a job, typically. But you will usually have somebody above you who knows how to do it. And they will always have someone above them who knows why 
Because the ultimate question that any of us have to answer, and those who do answer it are the ones who thrive, is the question, why? And so before God is going to tell His people what they're supposed to do, those are the lettuces. Let us do this, and let us do this, and let us do this, let us do this, and let us do this. Before He tells us let us, He's going to tell us why. Because God always puts resources before responsibilities. Religion reverses them. Do this, and if you do, God will be pleased with you. That's religion. Christianity is, no, this is what Christ has done for you. In light of that, if you understand why, what you do and how will come naturally. But if you just tell people what to do, it won't work. So God is going to first tell us our resources. Now, this is going to go back a few verses earlier. This is going to be in chapter 10, verses 11 to 14. Look at these words. Day after day, every priest, these are the Jewish priests in the temple, every day after day, Jewish priest stands. Stands means he's still working and performs his religious duties again and again. He offers the same sacrifices which can never take away sin. Why? The blood of a bull or a goat can never atone for human sin because humans and animals are infinitely different. Infinitely. Why? We alone are made in the image of God. The blood of a bull or goat or any other animal can never atone for human sin. And so the priests in the Jewish system have to every day offer the same sacrifices over and over again, which can never, ever work. But when this priest, Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, his atoning death on the cross, he sat down. Why? His work is done. He sat down at the right hand of God. Since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool because by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. It's, it's full of contrasts. It's contrasting two systems. The system of Judaism versus what Jesus has done. One of them is, is day after day. It never ends. But here, gee, what Jesus did was done once for all. And this is priest after priest, through generation after generation, 100 generations. But there's this one priest who stands for us. They make the same sacrifices, but Jesus offered one sacrifice himself. Again and again, they have to do it, but he did it once for all. They have to stand because their work is never done, but he sat down because his work is done. Their sacrifices can never touch human sin. But what has his sacrifice done? Made perfect forever. Whoa. That's a pretty big contrast. Remember what he's doing. He's saying, why would you ever go back to that, to that left column when you've got the right, col right column for you? Why? Now, the word therefore is a reason why it's there. And the reason is to point back to what I just said. There is this 
sacrifice that Jesus has offered once for all to make us perfect before God, that is the first facet that he wants us to hold onto in an incredible way because it's so incredibly important. Jesus' once for all sacrifice has paid for all of a believer's sin and made him or her perfect in God's sight forever. That's a huge statement. That's what Jesus did. Now, why would you ever want to go back on that to some kind of religious system? I don't know. But that's only the start. Brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, open for us through the curtain. That is his body. Not only has Jesus' sacrifice opened up, uh, enabled us to, to stand before God perfect forever, but because of what Jesus did for us, he has opened the way into the Holy of Holies so that we could walk into God's presence. You see, back in the society in which this was written, only the high priest, one day a year, with fear and trembling, could go into the Holy of Holies. And into the holy place, only the Levitical priests could go in there. Regular hoi polloi like us could never go in there. We weren't allowed. But because of Jesus now, the Holy of Holies has been opened up to us. The very presence of God has been opened up to any believer because of what Jesus did. So we've got a sacrifice that has taken care of all of our sin. And we've got a high priest who went into the Holy of Holies, tore down the veil, and opened it up for any of us to walk in. And now this high priest has rule of the house of God. Now, that is what Jesus has done for us. Now, what what might you be like? What would it be like if you really believed that all your sin, all of it, has been removed forever? And if you really believed that you are Jesus' kin and you have thus free and full access into the presence of God? And what if you really believed that you actually belonged in God's house? What might you be like? Well, maybe you'd be like John John. Many of you won't know what I'm talking about because you weren't alive back then, but many of you were. Do you remember when President Kennedy was in office? And we got those pictures. I went online this morning and looked at them. They are so cute. It's stunning. Little John John, a little boy hiding under his dad's desk in the Oval Office. Little John John sitting in the middle of the Oval Office sucking his thumb. Little John John playing tag with his sister Caroline in the Oval Office. Little John John running to his daddy with his daddy's arms wide open in the Oval Office. That room that most depicts great power in our world today, there you find this little child as if this was his playroom. That's true. That's for us. We are uh, uh, invited into the Oval Office of the, of the universe because 
God is our daddy. Whoa, that's amazing. God is masterful. Um, I don't know if you ever were told this. <laughs> Why do this? Well, because I said so. I heard that a couple times, and I think I probably said it myself. I'm not proud of that, but I did. Um, but God is so masterful in how he, he, he motivates us to follow him. He could say, because I said so, I'm God. He could do that, and he has every single right to do that. And he does do that occasionally. But that's not typically what God does. God doesn't say, obey me because I said so. He says, because I use grace to motivate people, not guilt. I, I motivate people by telling them their resources, not by giving them the rules. I do it by giving reasons before responsibilities. I want people to know their identity, who they are, before I tell them what their duty is as a child of the king. Because done in God's realm comes before do. And opportunities are the essence, not obligations. And God wants us to know the why before the what. There was an experiment done at the University of Pennsylvania's Wharton School of Business Administration. And uh, in this thing, they, they hired a bunch of people to make cold call to alumni to ask them to give money to the university. Now, that's a horrible job, but they did it. But what the people did, they didn't know, is the callers were divided into three groups. They didn't know this. One-third of them were given um, uh, uh, accounts of the benefits that the previous people who were in their position had accrued because they had done this job. The second group were, um, were told stories, real stories, of people who had received the money from the alumni and it had benefited their lives. And the third group was the test group. They weren't told anything. At the end of a period of time, the first group and the third group didn't do very well. The second group got twice as much money as the first group and the third group. Why? Well, because they were told stories of what the actual recipients how it had changed their lives by the giving of the alumni. And they came to this conclusion. A salesperson tells, a good salesperson explains, and a great salesperson demonstrates. For God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God knows he's good. He's really good. Well, in light of what Christ has done, he says, now here are your opportunities. I don't like to use the word responsibilities because for us to do these things for one another, these are privileges. These are not, yeah, you gotta do it. It's a privilege. And here's what he says. I call this the lettuce patch. He's now going to give us in very fast order five things begin, that begin with the word lettuce. Let us draw near to God. Let us hold unswervingly to hope. Let us consider how to spur one another on to love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together. Let us encourage one another. Let's look at the five. 
first one. Let us. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with water. Um, that's where he begins. Let us draw near to God. You know, because of our gracious standing with God, procured for us by the sacrifice of Jesus, the opening up of the Holy Holies, and a high priest to represent us, we can draw near to God. That's an amazing thing. I think in many ways Christianity is unique in this regard. Most religions, of course, depict God as this wholly distant individual who's extremely angry and you would never want to come close to him because you'd get vaporized. Well, apart from Jesus, we would be vaporized. But because of Jesus, we're perfect. Because of Jesus, the veil has been torn back, torn away. Because of Jesus, we have an advocate, a high priest, who has been where we are. We can go into God's presence confidently, with full assurance of faith. Wow, that's the first one. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. Because of our gracious standing with God, because of the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ, because the veil has been torn in two and we have access into the Holy of Holies, because Jesus is our high priest, we of all people can embrace the promises of God and live lives of hope. Of all people in the world today, the most hopeful ought to be us. You probably recognize that dear face. Uh, he's a Nobel Prize laureate. Well, Alexander Solzhenitsyn wrote A Day in the Life of Ivan Dzinovich and the Gulag Archipelago, Nobel Prize winning literature. He was in the Gulag. He was in the Soviet um, uh, camps in Siberia. And um, he became so weak and so discouraged that he wanted to die. But in the Gulag, if there was any person there who did not work hard, and was sick or weak, the guards would just kill them. And so Alexander Solzhenitsyn decided he was going to stop working, and he wanted the guards to kill him. When he did so, there was another Christian who drew a cross where Alexander Solzhenitsyn could see it. He drew the cross. And on seeing that cross, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, being a Christian himself, said, no. I live by the promises of God, not by my own state of, of, of physical weakness or wanting to die. I live by the promises of God. It gave him hope. He went on. He survived the gulag and went on to give the world some of its greatest literature. Why? Because he had hope. In fact, that's one of the great things we have. Our culture is pushing with ever-increasing power three false and, frankly, hopeless lies. 
They're pushing them so fast, so hard, I can hardly stand it. The first lie is that the human heart is the source of truth. This lie is pushed everywhere, but what that leads to is no truth, the total relativity of truth. No, our hope is not based on our heart. Our hope is based on the promises of God. It's the promises of God that give us hope. Our hearts do not give us hope. They are hopeless. The second lie is the lie that the human lifespan is all that we get. No. That leads to a temporal perspective that all you want to live your life for is what pleasures you can get now for you. No, we don't live for that. We live for hope because we believe in the promises of God that are eternal. And the third lie is the lie that human happiness is the greatest good. That leads to selfishness. And selfishness is going to have a very short wick. It will not lead to hope. I think our, 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 our culture is, is, is pushing lies that are so incredibly hopeless. And we're buying it. No, since Jesus Christ has paid the sacrifice for our sins, since he's opened up the presence of God, since he's our great advocate as a high priest, we of all people are people of hope. And let us consider. Now the word consider means think. Think hard. Let us consider how we may spur. The word spur means provoke, irritate, incite, stir up. Think. How can you incite other people, one another, to love and to good deeds? Oh, that's a, that's a, this is my favorite of all the one another's. Our daily task is to think. When we come into contact with one another, as we're going to do all the time, part of our job is to turn on your brain. Think, this is my brother or sister, and they're precious in God's sight. How can my life and my words be used by God to help them to love better, and to go do good deeds. I get to have a part in that. That's a pretty good deal. You see, we live in a society today in, in which uh, we often think of, how can I get my needs met? You see, consumer Christianity is actually a contradiction in terms. Christianity is, is not about getting my needs met, though that happens. Christianity is about us being in Christ, following Christ, being used by Christ to live lives for others. Now, in the early church, they were stopping. They didn't meet together anymore. They, um, and, and the word give up there means to desert or to abandon. Remember what I said they were doing? They were abandoning the church. Let us not... Abandon, as some are in the habit of doing. You know, we, we, we live in a society today in which, again, the pressure for us to abandon meeting together is great. First of all, we live in a society in which our dominant value, according to sociologists, is radical individualism. 
That's our dominant value as a culture, radical individualism. It's all about me, my choices, my heart, my happiness, me. That's what it's about. Well, if that's what it's all about, we're not going to be doing very well as a community of God's people. Also, we live today in a society of technological isolation. We're more and more isolated from one another because of our technology. And we have an aversion to institutions. All of these factors are causing us as people who call themselves evangelical Christians to be done with the church. Why? Well, because a lot of factors are coming to play at the same time. Let us not do that. We need each other. And why do we need each other? Because we need the encouragement that we can get. What's ironic about the done movement in America today is that it should be the exact opposite. What God says is, as time marches on and we get nearer to the end, we need each other more. And we desperately need each other's encouragement more, not less. You probably don't recognize that face, but he is a famous pastor of the past generation in Dallas, Texas. He, for almost 50 years, was the pastor of First Baptist Church of Dallas, Texas. He was out on a hunting trip. And while on a hunting trip, he accidentally shot and killed his best friend. His daughter said that George Truitt, that who is who he is, she never heard him laugh ever again in his life. But he is a very famous pastor, and he had a radio program. And every time at the end of his radio program, he would end with these words. Be good to everybody. Because everybody is having a tough time. Be good to everybody. Because everybody is having a tough time. There's a woman named Mammy, Mamie Adams. And she lived in a little town, smaller than Sheridan, and she would go to the post office uh, in her town um, over and over again, and she got a, developed a good a friendship with the post office workers. One time about Christmas, she went to the post office to buy some stamps, and she stood in a very long line, as you want to do at Christmas time, just to buy some stamps. And someone in the line said, uh, why are you in line? She says, I'm here to buy some stamps. And they said, well, they're the best. There's some machines over there. You don't have to stand in this long line. And Mamie said, I know. But the machine never asks me about my arthritis. <laughs> and you know, these machines are never going to ask us. They're never we're never going to have true fellowship with these machines. Computers, iPads, telephones, or cell phones, etc. You've probably heard of the great painter, Benjamin West. When he was a little boy, he decided to draw a picture of his sister. He got out some paints. His mother was not home, and he made a colossal mess. It was a horrible mess. All over the table, all over the floor. When his mother got home, she looked at the picture and said, What a beautiful picture, and she kissed him. And later in life, Benjamin West said, That kiss made me a painter. I can tell you from my own life how little words from my father and other people at key points in my life have changed the course of my life. I wouldn't be a pastor if it wasn't for a, just a simple sentence from my father who said, Tom, have you ever given any thought to being a pastor? As a 27-year-old who didn't know what I was doing with my life, little words of encouragement 
are very, very powerful. Would your circle of friends and family, if they had to evaluate your life, would they say, you know, oh, my dad, my mom, my brother, my sister, my friend, they're an encourager. Well, boldness. We can come into God's presence because of what Jesus has done boldly. Hopefulness. We have the promises of God we can cling to to give us hope. Purposefulness. Our lives are, are valuable. We, we can stimulate each other to love and good deeds. Community. Oh, we are part of something much bigger than we are. Let us be people who encourage. My challenge to you this, this day is take it to heart. Will you think about how you can stimulate one another to love and to good deeds? Start at home. It's the best place to start. But then with your family and friends. Can you encourage people? Yeah, we can do it. How can we be used by God to increase the courage of another person? Well, I'd like to end with a story. The story I'm about to tell is a true story. I was there. And I did my fact-checking because I checked with the person whose story I'm about to tell. I saw that picture hundreds and hundreds of times. It was everywhere on every building in Swaziland when I lived there in the 1970s. This is King Sabuza II. King Sabuza II is the, um, the longest reigning monarch in human history. 82 years. He's the longest reigning monarch in known human history. When I lived there in the 1970s, he was an old man, had 100 wives and many, many children, over 200 children, but he was a good man, spoke English fluently, was educated in, in, in England, as well as Siswati, his native tongue. The man whose story I'm about to tell you, his name was Jerry Harpool. Jerry Harpool was a missionary. I was not. I was a government employee. I was, I was paid by the Swazi government. But Jerry was a missionary with the Evangelical Alliance Mission there. And he was the principal of the school where I attended, where I taught. And one of the desires he had when he first came to Swaziland was he wanted to be able to meet this man, the king of Swaziland. Now, that's very rare because the American ambassador at the time had only met this king once when he presented his credentials. And so it was very, very unusual for anyone to meet the king. And in fact, when Jerry asked the people of Swaziland, is it possible to meet the king? They said, here's quote, no, no, no. A commoner and a foreigner is not able to visit the king. One has to be a dignitary to have that privilege. Well, the Swazi king, I heard lots of stories about him. He was one, he's one of the only absolute monarchs in the world at the time. He owned all the land and had all the power. When he, when he appeared in public, which was seldom, he was always preceded by a person called a praise man. Some, a, a man dressed in this incredible regalia would come out and dance and would, for about 10 minutes or longer, would just recite the names of the king. The lion, the great one, on and on they would go. And then the king would come into the presence. Well, I remember what happened, and I remember the day, November 30th, 1976. I was there at school, because we all lived on this compound, and the police came. They said, where's Mr. Harpool? Here's Mr. Harpool and his wife, Jan. So said, where's Mr. Harpool? He said, uh, he's not here. 
The king requests his presence this afternoon at the royal, at the royal palace. Well, when Jerry found out, they, they said, well, of course you have to go. They said, well, how do you visit a king? They said, well, um, you've got to bring a gift. They said, we don't have anything. We lived out in the bush, only dirt roads. There were no gifts. There's no, you couldn't buy anything. So they got together a bag of beans and some other, and, and, a, and, a, and a stock of bananas. And they put them in Jerry's little VW bug with South Africa license plates. That was during the heart of apartheid. That was no-no. <laughs> and he and his wife, and they said, well, 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 we dress in your finest clothes, and but don't ever bring a camera. The king does not allow pictures. So Jerry threw it in his car anyways. They drove <laughs> up to the, the palace. They're supposed to meet. The, the, the police said that he had to be there at 7 o'clock. He got there just before 7, and he sat and waited. And at 9 o'clock, the doors to the throne room opened up, and out of the throne room walked one of the king's sons and an elderly advisor, very old man. They said, the king will see you now. And as soon as the elder advisor and the king's son got in the room, they immediately went down on their faces and crawled into the room like this. And whenever the king said anything, they'd go, kose, which means praise to our Lord, and back on the floor. Well, Jerry and Jan didn't know what to do, so he said that he walked in like this, because you, know, you didn't know, are you supposed to buy, they didn't know if they were supposed to, oh, they, by the way, they took off their shoes and socks, too. You had to do that in the presence of the king. Well, the king went and met them and shook their hands and had some chairs, and they sat down in the chairs, and they got to talk with the king for about 15 minutes. And then the king said, have you brought a camera? <laughs> and they had. And they went out and got the camera. They said, let's take some pictures. And by the way, the king only is pictured very seldom with men, but never with women. Only um, uh, Princess Margaret and, and the Queen of Lesotho. You had to be royalty. And he said, let me take a picture with your wife. So he took a picture with Jan, took a picture with Jerry, and them together. And uh, couldn't believe it. When, we, when he got home the next day, we just were mesmerized as Jerry and Jan told us a story. But the question was, how did he get to do this? There's a secret. You see, one of our students was Mahabedla Dlamini, and Mahabedla was the king's son. And that, that son that came out of the throne room, that was Mahabedla. Mahabedla, two weeks previous, had told his father about his principal, Jerry Harpool, and he said, you know, my, my principal would like to meet you sometime. And of course, the king said nothing until the police showed up and said, the king wants to meet you. And so Jerry now used this story over and over again. He said, you know, here I was as an American with South African license plates, with a bag of beans and a stack of bananas, I was ushered into the presence of the king. And how did I get to do that? So because I knew the king's beloved son. Thank you for the privilege, the great honor of being children, siblings, of the beloved Son, the Son of God, the Son of Man, our Savior, our Lord, our High Priest, our sacrifice. Thank you. Amen. Please stand with me. 
Here's your task. Go eat some lettuce. <laughs> yeah, eat it well. Because of what God has done for us, we're here to stimulate one another to love and to good deeds. Encourage one another. May you go because you've been blessed by the atoning sacrifice, the opening through the veil, and the high priesthood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.